She comes to Jesus completely honest and completely forthright to say, my daughter is demonized. She's severely demonized. She doesn't lessen it. She doesn't try to negate the reality of it. She doesn't try to hide it with euphemisms. Instead, she embraces the truth with what drives her to Jesus. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So she comes to us today as not only an illustration of saving faith and not only an illustration of God's purpose in affliction, but she comes to us as this great and powerful illustration of intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer, most of us probably can recognize that title. We know that the scriptures speak to us of a number of different types of prayers. Prayers of uh, supplication, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of adoration, prayers of petition, prayers of confession and repentance and other types of prayers. And her purpose for communication is to intercede or to ask God for some blessing or some mercy on behalf of her little daughter. And so she is for us, this example of intercessory prayer. Now, we know that she's an example, or actually we could say one of the premium examples, one of the prime examples of intercessory prayer in the Scriptures. We know this because from Matthew's account in Matthew 15, Jesus will respond to her at the end end of that interchange with her, and He'll say to her, verse uh, 28 from Matthew chapter 15, Then Jesus answered to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. So last week we may know the fact that Jesus says, great is your faith, indicating for us that here is an example, an illustration of saving faith, genuine faith. He follows that up with this other statement, be it done to you as you desire. In other words, your will be done. Name another person in Scripture whom Jesus says to them, your will be done, other than the Father. This is the only example of Jesus saying to a person, what you desire, let it be done for you. Such an overwhelming, startling statement from Jesus indicates for us that He wants us to see her the way that she comes to Him, the way that she pleads with Him, the substance of her requests, everything about this. Jesus wants us to see her as an illustration, as an example, as a teaching illustration for intercessory prayer. So as such, she is one of a number of examples in the scriptures of intercessory prayer. Let's call it this. Let's call it prevailing intercessory prayer. By prevailing, we just mean a prayer that is victorious in its goals, that succeeds in its goals, that that realizes the thing asked for. That's, That's what we could call prevailing intercessory prayer. She is an example of prevailing intercessory prayer. 
And she stands among some others that are also wonderful examples for us of intercessory prayer. The first of those, anybody know what the first example, the the foundational, if you will, example of intercessory prayer would be our Lord in John 17, as he prays for his church, for his people, as he intercedes for his people. So Jesus in John chapter 17 spends that entire chapter and beyond petitioning the Father with requests for his people. We could take some time. In fact, we we could take weeks and dissect John chapter 17 and learn much about Jesus's requests for his people. But we'll skip over that. We'll just recognize that Jesus is the primary example for the intercessor, for the prevailing intercessor who goes before the Father on behalf of others to ask that some mercy or some blessing might be given to another. But aside from Jesus, we also find a number of other examples of prevailing intercessory prayer. We can think of, first of all, of the example of Abraham back from Genesis chapter 17. We know the story there in Genesis 17. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, along with two angels, comes to Abraham's tent and they share a meal together. And after that meal, God is going to send the two angels on to their next destination, which is Sodom and Gomorrah for the purpose of destruction. And we know in that chapter 17 of Genesis how Abraham pleads with God. In fact, dickers with God, bargains with God, if you will, to say, God, far be it from you to destroy the land. What if there's 50 righteous people there? Would you still destroy it if there's 50? And then 40 and then 30 and then 20, this back and forth with God. God, and you see how he's pleading with God on behalf of others, specifically the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, but I guess in particular, his nephew Lot and Lot's family, which Abraham, of course, knows that he's living there. So Abraham is pleading to God on behalf of another. And we know that the answer to that prayer was, yes, Abraham, eventually, if there's even 10 there, I'll spare it even for 10, which God, of course, does not spare the city, but he does spare Lot and his two daughters and his wife, who looked back and was turned to salt. But but nevertheless, God does spare Lot and his daughters and his wife. So that would be a great example for us to turn to, to look to one who pleads before God on the behalf of another. We also could think of Moses. Moses in places like Exodus 32 or, or numerous times in the book of Numbers or numerous times even in the book of Exodus in which the same story sort of repeats itself over and over. It's, on, it's like it's on repeat. And the story goes like this. The people grumble, they complain, they're tired of the food, they're tired of the water, they're tired of walking, they're tired of this, they're tired of that. And they begin complaining about God and complaining about Moses. God hears this and God is angry and he's going to destroy them. And Moses goes before God on their behalf to say, no, God, don't destroy this people. Even when God says to Moses, listen, they are complaining against you. They are rebelling against you. Let me destroy them and make a new nation from you. Moses still goes before God and pleads on their behalf that God would forgive and that God would be patient with them. So a couple of examples there of intercessory prayer. We could also see another example in the life of Elijah. Remember the life of Elijah as we turn to James's book there at the end of James in chapter 5 when James says to us, that uh, this point that he wants to make, he wants to illustrate this point that that the fervent, devoted, dedicated prayer of one who is righteous before God 
one who has been made righteous before God, that fervent prayer is effective. God hears that and God responds to that. And to make his point, James then says, take for an illustration, Elijah, who prayed and then the heavens were shut up and then prayed once again and the rains fell. So particularly his prayer that the rains would return. We can see that also as an example of prevailing intercessory prayer on behalf of others. Then we could turn to the New Testament and we could see a wonderful example. And we'll return to this later on in the message this morning, but we can find a wonderful example in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who is the Scripture's example of the praying man, because there are more prayers in the Scriptures by Paul by far than anyone else. In fact, anyone, all the others put together, it seems like. 43 prayers in the New Testament are recorded from Paul. And in the great majority of those words that Paul is praying and those epistles that he's writing, the great majority of those words are prayers for other people. Just think of his prayer in Romans chapter 9 when he says, Oh, that, that it could be me instead of them that was, uh, that was separated from the grace of God, that I could be separated from the grace of God on their behalf. And again and again and again, we see this example of Paul as a praying person, particularly praying for others, praying for the church. But let's now return to this woman whom Jesus wants to set aside for us as an example of intercessory prayer. And let's spend a few moments just observing her prayer, how she came to Jesus, and what can we learn by the way in which she comes to Jesus? How can that inform our habit, our practice of praying for others? So as we begin to look at her account here, first of all, we want to notice that she comes to Jesus with this request for her little daughter, for her precious daughter, And we want to make note of the fact that her request stares reality in the face. She looks open-eyed at the reality of what she is here to ask Jesus to do. She comes to Jesus and she says, My daughter is demonized. She is possessed of demons. Literally in Matthew's gospel, she says she is severely demonized. So notice how the woman did not come to Jesus saying to Jesus, listen, can you help my daughter? She acts kind of weird sometimes. She's she's got some social problems. Sometimes she scares her friends. Sometimes she says some, some really disturbing things. Sometimes she can be really cruel to her little brother. And we're kind of worried about her. We're worried that something might not just might not be right about her. Instead, she comes to Jesus completely honest and completely forthright to say, my daughter is demonized. She's severely demonized. She doesn't lessen it. She doesn't try to negate the reality of it. She doesn't try to hide it with euphemisms. Instead, she embraces the truth with what drives her to Jesus. Imagine the social stigma that probably existed with a demonized daughter. How did your daughter get demonized? What sort of household do you have that you allowed a demon to come into your daughter? What sort of mother are you? What sort of influences did you allow your daughter to come in contact with? Imagine the stigma that would have gone along with that. But instead of hiding behind that and trying to come to Jesus with the request that words it in some way that's just not quite as abrasive or harsh as the reality really is, she instead comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is severely demonized. Stigma be damned. My daughter is demonized and I'm here to plead with you that you would help, that you would cast the demon out. 
So in reality, she says to Jesus exactly what the problem is, and she confronts it and she pleads that Jesus would help her. Some of us perhaps need to pray to the Lord on behalf of others, embracing that same tactic. Some of us, perhaps as we pray for our loved ones, perhaps we need to face reality. And instead of going before God to say, God, I I just wish that little Johnny or I just wish that little Mary, I just wish that you'd make them more spiritually excited about you. I just wish that you would invigorate their faith and get them excited. Instead, some of us need to come before the Lord and say, little Johnny is lost. Little Mary is damned to hell unless you interact in her heart. She made a profession when she was eight. And for the last 23 years, she showed zero spiritual fruit. And she's given no reason for us to believe that she's part of the family of God. And so, Lord, I just plead that you would act on her heart to save her. But instead, especially with loved ones, sometimes that reality can be hard to face. Sometimes we would rather think of it as, Lord, we just really wish that you would invigorate their faith and get them excited about their faith. And perhaps the prayer that God wants to hear from us is that my precious loved one is lost. My precious loved one needs a radical interaction from the Spirit of God to bring conviction of their sin and a radical regeneration into their heart. Perhaps that's the prayer that God would most like to hear on the lips of those who are interceding for them. Look with me in your notes at chapter at John, at 1 John chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. Now, 1 John chapter 8 or chapter 1, and these verses, John is speaking about how we go before the Lord for our own requests, for our own sins. But nevertheless, the same principle, the same point that John's going to make applies in the same way when we pray for others. John says this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we come before God and we say, God, we really don't have sin or really, I guess, more like how we would be tempted to pray would be to minimize our, our sin. Lord, just forgive me, Lord, for that for that thought, that little thought that crossed my mind today. Forgive me, Lord, that little thought. You know, I, don't, I really, I wasn't lusting, but I just had that little thought pop in my head. Forgive me of that, Lord. John says, if that's the way you come to the Lord, you're, first of all, deceiving yourself. Then he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Not if we come before him with this little minimalistic idea, this little euphemistic way of describing the sin. And we say, Lord, just forgive me of that little, that little errant thought. Instead, John says, come before the Lord and say to him, forgive me for lusting in my heart for that woman or for that man. Cleanse me of those unclean thoughts. Confess that sin. Then John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin. Does the same principle not also apply when we go before the Lord on behalf of others? God doesn't need to hear our minimalistic descriptions. He doesn't need to hear our euphemistic descriptions. He wants us to come before him facing the reality of our deep need of the one whom we are praying for, of their deep need for God's action in their life. 